You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On November 8th of 2010, a young woman would return to her family home in Markham, Ontario, and later that evening, the entire family would come under siege as armed gunmen would enter the home. The family had no idea how these attackers had managed to gain access to the home, and in the attack, the family matriarch would be murdered and the patriarch would be severely injured. It would slowly come to light that things were not quite as they seemed. Two weeks later, on November 22, 2010, Jennifer Pan would be arrested and charged for her part in a kill-for-hire scheme that targeted both of her parents, Bik Ha Pan and Hui Han Pan. Hello, and welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, the family kill-for-hire plot of Jennifer Pan. everyone and welcome back to GBNF. I will be the first to admit that it will be good to move on from the three-part series on Bruce MacArthur and the awful crimes that he committed and all the issues surrounding that case. This week's episode though is not less tragic, less graphic, or less heartbreaking. Before we dive back into the dark and dreary world of true crime, let's talk about the podcast and the ways that you can reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, or cases that you would like for us to cover. We are everywhere. As we've said numerous times, we are super easy to find on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok if you want to interact, share posts, or send us messages. We're always willing and looking forward to talking with you. We also have our Patreon page for fans of the show that wish to help out a couple of independent podcasters, and we have merch, something that we certainly cannot mention enough. GBNF has a fan base that is growing like wildfire, and we love nothing more than seeing the pictures that you send our way of you receiving your GBNF merchandise in the mail. With the podcast going weekly, we're working hard to stay on track week in and week out and always bring you thorough, reliable, and interesting stories of true crime within Canada and abroad. We certainly appreciate every listener, every patron, and every little bit of help that is sent our way. Without you goners, this podcast would be, well, gone. Oh my gosh, super corny. Isn't that why you love me? Let's be honest, I am the king of awkward jokes and dad jokes. Um, I'm sure you're the king of something. And now, without any further ado, let's take a look at the life and crimes of Jennifer Pan, and more importantly, the awful circumstances surrounding her outright attack on her family, and why she did what she did. Thank you.
On June 17, 1986, Jennifer Penn was born to her parents, Bic Ha Pan and Hue Han Pan, in Markham, Ontario. Her parents landing in Canada separately after fleeing Vietnam in 1979. Han was born and went to school in Vietnam. He moved to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Bic also immigrated as a refugee. The two met here in Canada, got married in Toronto, and lived in Scarborough. The Pans would eventually find work at an auto parts manufacturer called Magna International in Aurora, Ontario. Han working as a tool and die maker, and Bic made car parts. The two worked hard to get ahead in Canada because they wanted to give their family the best life possible and provide everything that their children could ever want or need. Things that they had not received in their own childhood while still in Vietnam. The couple had two children. First, in 1986, came a daughter, Jennifer, and then a son in 1989, Felix. After years of working hard, the family purchased a large home with a two-car garage in Markham, Ontario. Because the Pans were working so hard to provide the lives that they wanted for their children, and much in line with Asian culture, the Pans had very high expectations for their children. As much as the Pans wanted to provide a better life for their children, they also wanted their children to excel so that they could provide an even better life for the next generation of their family. Jennifer was put into piano lessons at the age of four, and she was also put into figure skating classes where the training was difficult and vigorous, taking up most of Jennifer's week. For her part, Jennifer had a dream of becoming an Olympic figure skating champion. However, her dreams in the figure skating world would come to an abrupt end when she tore a ligament in her knee. Jennifer also would later play the flute in her school band at Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School. Jennifer showed a lot of early promise in regards to piano and really everything that she was enrolled in. She was driven by her parents to try to be the absolute best at everything that she did. For those of us who grew up in homes like that, that can certainly be a double-edged sword. You're pushed to the absolute to be the absolute best at things, and it definitely gives you the drive to do better and better. But also, when you come up short, you certainly feel like you have let everyone down, which can lead to a lot of insecurity, stress, and certainly anxiety. Unfortunately for Jennifer, it would appear that all of that stress started to catch up with her at a very young age. Jennifer would start cutting by the time she was in grade 8. Her life was based entirely around the activities that her parents enrolled her in and school at that point. Friends remember a girl who was picked up at the end of school every day and then even said that most nights she would get home from figure skating as late as 10 p.m., study until midnight, and then go to bed, only to wake up the next day and do it all again. The pressure was intense, and Jennifer had a very little social life, if any. I can't believe, like, I can't understand, I guess, working and being up until midnight before a school day. Like, I certainly, especially in, like, grade 8, I was not up that late. Yeah, no, and, like, the thing is, is, like, you're trying to focus 100% on school, but then you have to focus 100% on anything else. Like, you never get a break. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I mentioned people that grow up like that. My family was pretty, not strict, but they expected the best out of me, so anything that wasn't perfect was, you know, um, I don't know, a problem. Yeah, oh, for sure, and I bet you felt a lot of that pressure. 
Yeah, I think, you know, cluing right back into where it runs out, I think that a lot of my anxiety issues today and the feeling that I have to do everything perfect goes back to that. So, in a way, at this point in the story, I can kind of feel for Jennifer. Yeah, definitely. All of the pressure that Jennifer had on her from others and herself did catch up with her at the end of grade 8. Jennifer was getting prepared for grade 8 graduation, and she was expected and expecting to be named valedictorian for her graduating class. And she was also anticipating that she would receive a plethora of medals for her academic achievements, because she was getting very good grades. However, when graduation day arrived, Jennifer was shocked and disappointed when she didn't win any awards and was not named as valedictorian for her class. Even though it would be acceptable that Jennifer would be down on herself, Jennifer kept on a happy face and said that it was perfectly fine. Jennifer would later say, though, that she didn't understand what the point was in trying your hardest and pushing yourself so hard if nobody around you was going to realize and acknowledge your hard work. Jennifer didn't see that perhaps others had better grades or different reasons for being acknowledged ahead of her. No, instead she felt that she was being personally slighted by everyone around her. It wasn't just school that Jennifer started to grow disdainful towards. As she continued to grow older, she realized that her parents were also greatly restricting her. She recognized that she was not having the same upbringing that most of her friends had, and she had an awful lot more rules. On top of the extracurriculars, rules, and expectations, Jennifer was highly restricted by her parents. She was not allowed to date, she was not permitted to go to school dances, and she was not allowed to go to things like parties. Her parents believed that doing any of those things would distract Jennifer from her work and keep her from realizing her full potential. By the age of 22, Jennifer had not been out drinking, she had not gone to a bar or a club, and she hadn't ever been on anything even resembling a vacation that was not a family vacation. Jennifer felt locked up and trapped, and she didn't have a clue what to do about it. As mentioned, Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School in Scarborough, Ontario. The school was an eclectic one, for sure. It was atypical of what you see when you watch movies that are centered on a high school. Most people found and had their cliques based on their interests and what they did in their free time. People who knew Jennifer in high school would say that when she was within the walls of the school, that is where she truly excelled. Jennifer was not socially awkward at all. She loved to socialize. She was friends with absolutely everyone in her school, and it seemed she was popular. She was friends with everyone from jocks to nerds, and it didn't matter their race, gender, or interest. She lived for her time at school because it seemed like that was the one place that Jennifer really could be Jennifer without the constant watchful eye of her parents on her. To most people that went to school with and knew Jennifer, she was a happy, vibrant social butterfly who was just waiting for the moment to spread her wings. Unfortunately, that really was all part of the act that Jennifer seemed to have perfected. She was able to look calm, cool, and collected on the outside, but on the inside, things were very different. Jennifer was very much dealing with feelings of depression, inadequacy, shame, and self-doubt. Most of all, Jennifer seemed to be struggling with the fact that when she came in second place, she was seen as a failure. 
Second place was not something to be celebrated, but rather it was seen by her and her family as the first loser. During this time at home, her mom started to realize that Jennifer was certainly not herself at all. Moms know this kind of thing, that's for sure. Mom and dad, though, were very different people and seemed to hold different parenting values and methods. Jennifer's father was seen by many to be the classic tiger parent, which is a term that is used to describe strict parenting in which parents become highly invested in their children's lives and their children's success. These types of parents often enroll their children in activities that are considered to be of high status and they expect the absolute best grades in school. This parenting practice is seen as being equal parts positive parenting and negative parenting. Jennifer's mom, on the other hand, was actually seen by those that knew the family as much less of a tiger parent, but rather they felt that she was an unwilling almost accomplice in this style of parenting, but she would follow her husband's lead. Her mom, though, would try to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with Jennifer while her dad was sleeping to try to reassure her that her parents only wanted her best, not that they expected her always to be the best. It would seem, though, that this did not entirely resonate with Jennifer by this point because she already had seen and felt the disapproval from herself and from her family when she came up short. Those feelings of inadequacy likely led Jennifer to what was going to become a major part of her life. She started to lie and cover up grades and facts in so many ways. For instance, before high school, Jennifer had been a model student. As we said, she was expecting to be valedictorian for her graduating class in grade 8, which would place her at the top of her class. Her grades were high, she worked hard, and she was excelling. By the mid part of her first year in high school, however, things had changed. Her average on her midterms was 70%. Great marks for many people, but for Jennifer, she knew that this would not do. You would expect that Jennifer would likely hunker down to get her marks up, and you would also figure that life at home was not necessarily amicable because of the lower grades. However, both of those thoughts would be wrong. Her parents wouldn't find out about the lower grades because Jennifer had a plan. Jennifer, as we'll see, always seemed to have a plan and she used the skills and the creativity that she had to evade her parents and live a lie. Unfortunately, in my experience, it certainly seems that that is one of the ways that things can go when your parents are too strict. But the reality too is that I think every child and teen think that their parents are too strict on some level. It's certainly true, even if you have parents who aren't too strict, when they actually do impose some rules, that tends to piss a kid off. However, there are certainly ways to deal with that stress and that pressure. And what we're about to see from Jennifer is not the way to deal with it. Jennifer knew that universities didn't look at your grades from early years, grade 9 and grade 10, when considering a student for admission. And, as such, she used old report cards, scissors, glue, and a photocopier to doctor her report cards so that her parents wouldn't know that she was getting bad grades. So, here you have a very bright girl who thinks that she's playing the system and will pull her socks up and turn things around a little later when her grades matter. Unfortunately, in the higher grades, Jennifer was a B student when it was expected that she would be a straight A student. 
For most people, a B is outstanding. But unfortunately, Jennifer felt that it would not be good enough for her parents and that she would be seen as a failure. We will see that being a driving force for her throughout her life. The fear of failure. The key breaking point for Jennifer as far as her education would come in grade 12. Jennifer would fail a calculus class and she had an early acceptance at Ryerson University that would then be rescinded with that calculus failure. This would be a point in time where Jennifer would decide that she was better off to continue and double down on her lies instead of simply telling her parents that the things were not going the way she wanted at school and hope for the best. So what Jennifer did was elaborate. She literally lived two lives. At home and with her parents, she was a girl taking classes at university. She was a student at Ryerson, and she even would tell her parents that she was accepted into a pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. They believed her, and she even went to great lengths to appear as though she was a student at U of T. She was purchasing secondhand textbooks and watching videos on pharmacology courses and taking notes so that her parents would see the textbooks and notebooks strewn about the house. I guess I'll interject and say, yeah, that's how it all was being shown at home. But the truth was this. Jennifer was not in university. She wasn't even in college. When she was supposedly in class, she was actually working odd jobs as a piano instructor and working in restaurants to make money. She even told her parents that she was succeeding greatly and winning awards in post-secondary school. She made fake documents showing that she'd received loans from the government to pay for school, and she was bringing home made-up awards to show off. Jennifer even convinced her parents that she should be permitted to move in with a friend in downtown Toronto for most of the week so that she could cut down on her commute back and forth. Her parents agreed to this at long last. Instead, Jennifer was living with her boyfriend, Daniel Chi-Kwong Wong, and his family. They lived in Ajax, Ontario, just east of Toronto. Daniel and Jennifer had met in high school when both were attending Mary Ward together. Daniel would switch schools halfway through their final year because his grades were struggling and he also had been charged with drug trafficking after police found a half pound of weed in his car. Jennifer was not only lying to her own parents, though, she was also lying to Daniel's parents, who she told that her parents were okay with her living with them, and she brushed off all requests of Daniel's parents to meet with her own. After four years of lying about attending post-secondary school, the time came for Jennifer to graduate from U of T. She told her parents that because there was so many graduating students in her class, that everyone was only allowed to have one guest attend the ceremony. She said that she didn't want to leave one of her parents out, so instead she was going to give her ticket to a friend. She literally just lived this story and spun this lie to the very end, didn't she? It really is a heck of a lot of dedication. I mean, I can't imagine holding all of that together. She was literally studying while not in school to make it appear like she was in school. She was living in a different city than her parents believed, and just about everything in her life was a lie in some way, shape, or form. Our son better not pull any of these kind of stunts on us. But see, I think that is the crux of it by this point. How do you ever come out of this lie? 
It's clear that she was afraid of her parents seeing her as a failure, like you said. It was nearly impossible for her to tell the truth in the beginning about a failed calculus class. How on earth do you fess up after four years of fake studies to everything? At one point, you simply have no choice but to live the lie, and Jennifer appears to be well past that point here. I can't even imagine. I have enough anxiety in my one life. I certainly don't need all of that added anxiety of a second life or a third life. Jennifer would later say that she had developed a way to deal with all of her lies. She said, and I quote, I tried looking at myself in the third person and I didn't like who I saw, but the rationalizations in my head said I had to keep going. Otherwise, I would lose everything that ever meant anything to me, unquote. This week's episode is sponsored in part by Creations from the Heart. Donna is a metalsmith who specializes in saw-pierced pieces, jewelry and decorative pieces, and saw-pierced nature scenes on stones. She does amazing work and is able to design and create whatever you can put your mind to, and as such is very open to custom orders. I can personally vouch for her work as she has designed a dragon pendant piece for my chain and also created a new wedding ring for me. Her work is professional, the turnaround is quick, and I cannot stress enough how creative and high quality her work is. I also have one of Donna's Tree of Life pendants and absolutely adore her work. You can purchase Donna's work directly or request custom work by searching Creations from the Heart on Etsy, Facebook, or Instagram. I cannot stress enough that the heart in all of her sites is H-A-R-T. Next time you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind gift for yourself or someone that you love and want professional quality without the boutique price, get in touch with Creations from the Heart and you will not be disappointed. The time came, though, when the lies caught up to her. Jennifer would tell her parents that she was volunteering at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, but her dad clued into the fact that he had never seen a uniform or a name badge or a key card. He insisted that they take Jennifer to work, and when she ran into the hospital, he sent her mom in to follow her and see if she was really volunteering. She even hid out in the emergency waiting room for hours. Her parents eventually left the hospital and called the friend that Jennifer was supposedly staying with for years, and they found out the truth. Jennifer was not staying there. Most of the truth came out at this point. Jennifer admitted that she didn't volunteer at the hospital and that she had never been in the pharmacology program. She told them that she'd been living with Daniel, but she did not tell them that she was never even enrolled at Ryerson or that she had not even graduated high school. This left her mom understandably in tears, but her father's reaction was very clear. He was embarrassed, betrayed, and absolutely furious. His initial reaction was to tell Jennifer to get out of the house and never come back. Her mom would eventually calm him down enough to let her stay at the house. They took her cell phone and laptop away for two weeks, and she had way more restrictions after those two weeks. She was forbidden from speaking to Daniel ever again, 
and she was told that she would quit all of her jobs except for piano lessons. Over time, Jennifer would inevitably start getting more and more freedom back. She, however, stayed in close contact with Daniel behind her parents' backs. She did, however, enroll in a calculus class to get that final high school credit. So, like, as much as things change, they kind of stay the same? In this case, for sure. The double life was never completely gone. Daniel and Jennifer were always in touch. But again, Jennifer would make a mistake. One night, she snuck out of her parents' house and she piled up her blankets and pillows under her blanket to make it look like she was sleeping. The mistake, though, was when she went to Daniel's house, she accidentally took her mom's wallet with her. So, the morning came, and as her mom looked for her wallet, she discovered that Jennifer was not under her blanket sleeping. Jennifer and her parents fought about her attending college now, and in all of this, Daniel decided that he didn't want to be a part of all this anymore. Honestly, who can blame him? Regardless of what he had going on in his own life, this woman brought a lot of drama with her. Secret rendezvous, lies, long periods of time not seeing one another, and... Oh, did I mention the lies? Daniel broke up with Jennifer at this point, and she was beside herself soon after, when she learned that Daniel was dating another woman named Christine. You were saying something about lies, weren't you? Um, a couple times in this case, I think. Here comes some more lies. In an attempt to try and turn Daniel on Christine, she made up one heck of a story. She said that a man had come to her house and knocked on the door and shown her his police badge. Jennifer went on to say that she opened the door and let the officer in, and when she did, a group of men rushed in her home and gang-raped her. To top off the story, a few days later, she said that she had received a bullet in the mail. She said that these were warnings from Christine that she should leave Daniel alone. So much drama. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah, and he just kept coming back. Daniel and Jennifer would be on and off again, mostly through flirty texts. During her time away from Daniel, she would reconnect with a friend from high school who would talk to Jennifer about how strict her family was, and he floated the fact that he had often wondered what it would be like if his own father were dead. That idea struck a chord with Jennifer, and in the end, she would actually be introduced to another man named Ricardo Duncan, with whom she hatched a plan to kill her father in the parking lot at his workplace. Jennifer would claim that she gave Duncan $1,500, and Duncan would claim that she gave him $200. Regardless of the sum of money, though, Duncan stopped talking to Jennifer and stopped taking her calls after he was paid, and the hit never happened, and it never was attempted. However, as we see often in these situations, a failed attempt was not taken as an omen and a reason to stop this line of thinking. Instead, Jennifer and Daniel, who were again in constant contact with one another, devised a plan to hire someone to kill both of Jennifer's parents so that they could collect the estate, roughly $500,000 for Jennifer's portion, and live a happy life with her parents completely out of the way. Daniel would put Jennifer in touch using a burner phone with a man named Lenford Crawford, who was also simply known as Homeboy. Jennifer would ask Lenford how much it would cost to put a hit out on her parents. 
She was told that something of that nature would typically cost about $20,000, but because she was a friend of Daniel, it could be done for half of that amount. The plan was set into motion. Lenford even scouted out the neighborhood and the house on Halloween night because he knew he could slip around without being noticed with so many people walking the streets. November 2nd, though, complications began to arise. It appeared as though Daniel was having second thoughts on the plan, and he told Jennifer that he felt as strongly for Christine as Jennifer felt for him, and that he wasn't so sure that the plan was what he wanted to do. At first, Jennifer said to call off the hit then because she wanted to be with Daniel and she didn't have anywhere to go. Daniel pushed her though and said that she had said that she wanted her parents out of the way regardless of how things were going between her and Daniel. She reluctantly agreed that she wanted to keep the hit on for herself. That fight didn't last long though. You guessed it. The next day, he texted Jennifer and told her that he had set everything up for her. Within hours, they were reverting back to their old ways again as well, texting and calling and flirting as they always had. Later that day, Lenford texted Jennifer and told her that he needed to know what the plan was. He needed a date and a time. They texted back and forth for about a week trying to iron out those final plans, and then on November 8th, Lenford texted Jennifer and said they would complete the hit that day after work. On the evening of November 8th, Jennifer was watching TV alone in her bedroom while her father was reading the news and then headed to bed at 8.30pm. Her mother was out line dancing with a friend and her cousin. Jennifer's brother, Felix, was not home. At approximately 9.30pm, Bick would arrive home, change into her pajamas, and then start to watch TV on the main floor of the house. At 9.35, things would spring into action. A man named David Milvaganam, a friend of Lenford's, would call Jennifer at 9.35 p.m. and they would speak on the phone for just under two minutes. After she got off the phone, Jennifer would go downstairs and say goodnight to her mother. When she went downstairs, though, she would also unlock the front door, something that she would at first admit to and later retract when talking to investigators. At 10.02 p.m., allegedly as a signal to the three intruders that everything was good to go, a light would turn on in the upstairs study and it would stay on for a minute and then be shut off. At 10.05 p.m., another phone call would take place between David and Jennifer. This call would last for roughly three and a half minutes. Then, moments later, Lenford, David, and a third man named Eric Carty walked through the front door of the house. All three men were equipped with guns. One of the men would hold his gun to Bick, and another man ran upstairs, stuck a gun into the face of Han, and told him to get out of bed and go downstairs into the living room. The third man went to Jennifer upstairs and reportedly tied her arms behind her back and directed her to hand over cash that was in the house, approximately 2,500 Canadian and 1,100 American. Jennifer's mother asked in Cantonese how the men gained access to the house, and her father answered that he didn't know. He said that he was upstairs sleeping. One of the intruders told Han to stop talking and demanded money. Han had only $60 in his wallet, and the intruder said that Han was lying and pistol-whipped him to the back of the head. Bick began crying and pleading with the intruders, even begging them not to harm their daughter. 
In response to that request, one of the intruders told her that their daughter was a nice person and they could rest assured that they would not hurt her. Cardi would take Jennifer back upstairs at that point and he tied her to the banister. David and Lenford would take Jennifer's mom and dad downstairs into the basement where they covered both of their heads in blankets. Han would be shot twice, once in the shoulder and once in the face. Bick would be shot three times in the head. Han would slump to the floor and Bick was killed instantly. The intruders then ran out the front door to escape. This is absolutely devastating. And over what? Over Jennifer's inability to tell her parents the truth? Because they had strict rules? Rest assured, there are a lot of people out there who have a rough life at home, and a lot of people have a much more difficult family life than Jennifer did, and they didn't resort to this. The lies, though, were not yet over. I'm sure that our listeners can piece together a bit of the lies that come next. Jennifer said that she managed to struggle while tied up to get her phone out of her pants, and she dialed 911. She told the operator, quote, Help me, please. I need help. I don't know where my parents are. Please hurry, unquote. It is unbelievable to me that this woman had just had a hit done on her parents and they were both presumably dead after five gunshots rang out in the house and she was able to play her character here and act like something unexpected had happened. 34 seconds into the phone call to 911, though, something that Jennifer did not expect to happen happened. Han can be heard in the background of the call, moaning as he tried to crawl up the stairs in the house. He had not been killed and had come to discovering the body of his deceased wife beside him, both of them covered in blood. Jennifer would tell her father that she was on the line with 911. He would manage to get out the front door and was screaming as loud as his predicament would allow. The neighbor also called 911, and within minutes, police and an ambulance were on the scene. He would eventually be airlifted from a nearby hospital to Sunnybrook Hospital, where they would be better equipped to deal with his injuries. Police would interview Jennifer at 3 a.m., and then a couple of days later, she was brought in for more questioning. Police were starting to see holes in the stories that they were told. Oh, wow. Who knew that lying to the police would be so hard? Police could not understand why the keys to Han's Lexus, which were in plain sight, were not stolen. Police also could not understand why, if this was a home invasion, the assailants were not armed with rope or zip ties to tie up the victims. Most of all, what didn't make sense was that two of the family members were shot dead whilst Jennifer was left alive and simply tied to a banister. On November 12th, Han was awakened from a three-day induced coma. His injuries were awful. He had a broken bone near one of his eyes. His neck bone had been completely shattered from a bullet that had grazed his corroded artery. And he had bullet fragments that were lodged into his face that could not be removed. With all those injuries, though, there was a miracle at hand. Han remembered everything about the attack. Everything including two details that would lead police to understand that there may be a very good reason for the stories that they were hearing from Jennifer not making sense. Han remembered that he had seen his daughter speaking softly off to the side to one of the intruders, and he remembered that Jennifer had not been tied up at all while being led around the house by the attackers. Ten days later, police would bring Jennifer in for what would be her third interview. 
Police had also been monitoring her movements at this point. This interview would not be like the first two. Police were after something different. The detective conducting the interview told Jennifer that he knew that she was lying, and he knew that she was involved in the crimes that were committed in her home. He told Jennifer that she should admit to what she had done. Jennifer's reaction was to start crying and ask the detective repeatedly what was going to happen to her if she made a confession. It seems that after all of the failures that Jennifer had had in her life, her failure to be a good liar at all was the thing that would be her downfall here. She outsmarted nobody. In fact, in the end, it was Jennifer that was outsmarted by the police. The detective would tell Jennifer that he had access to computer software that could analyze lies and determine which statements were lies. He also told Jennifer that he had access to satellites that used infrared technology to watch movements that people made inside of buildings. In Canada, we should mention it is legal for police to lie to people who they are interrogating when it comes to evidence that will be presented at trial. That is what the detective did here. Over four hours of questioning, Jennifer would come up with a story that was outlandish and didn't even make sense. She said that the entire incident was an attempt by her to commit suicide. She said that she had tried to commit suicide but couldn't do it. So she hired these men to do it for her. She said they made a mistake and her parents were instead attacked. Well, that seems legit. I don't think that I have ever heard of someone paying $10,000 to commit suicide. That's for sure. Jennifer was arrested on the spot, and police would use her cell phone to find out who else was involved. That would lead police to bring in Daniel, Lenford, Cardi, and Crawford. And all, were, all five people were charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. David would be arrested on April 14, 2011 at the Jane and Finch Mall in North York. Cardi was arrested at the prison he was already serving time in, Maplehurst Correctional Complex in Milton, Ontario, on April 15, 2011. Daniel was arrested on April 26, 2011 at his job, and Crawford was arrested on May 4, 2011 in Brampton, Ontario. The trial would begin on March 19, 2014, three and a half years after the home invasion, and it was believed that the case would take some time. It took far longer than most people expected, though. Over 50 witnesses were called to testify, and the case took nearly 10 months to come to its conclusion. The end result was a guilty verdict across the board. Jennifer would receive 25 years with no chance of parole for the charge of first-degree murder, and she also received a second life sentence for the attempted murder on her father. The two sentences would be served concurrently. Daniel, Lenford, and Crawford would all receive the exact same sentences, but Cardi's trial was postponed because of an illness to his lawyer. Cardi would later plead guilty in December of 2015 to conspiring to commit murder. He was given an 18-year sentence with parole eligibility in nine years. For his part, whether true or not, Cardi said that he pled guilty to the lesser charge because he did not want to force Han to go through another trial. Part of the proceedings at the end of the case was that Han and Felix asked the court to ban Jennifer from ever being able to speak with or contact them again. 
Jennifer was also forced through court order to never contact Daniel Wong again. Han's life was certainly never the same. He is left unable to work and he suffers greatly from anxiety attacks and nightmares. He is constantly in pain, physical, from his injuries, and mental from the attack and loss of his wife. Han is unable to live alone, so he lives with relatives. Felix has moved to the east coast of Canada to try and escape the stigma and harassment that comes from being Jennifer's brother. He suffers from depression. Who can blame either one of them, really? Jennifer decided that her life was just too hard for her and she was going to take care of the problem, but everyone in her family is now worse off for the shitty decisions that she made. I don't really know what else there is to say here except for the obvious. An entire family was destroyed by this case. Bick's life was ended. Hans, for all intents and purposes, was also ended. I have no idea how you move on from a home invasion where your spouse was murdered, much less one that was orchestrated by your own daughter. Her brother, I feel for him. He was attending school, and in one fell swoop, his entire family was torn apart from within. There are places and people online that seem to really feel for Jennifer, which to me is crazy. Many of us grow up in homes that are rife with abuse of many kinds, and many people have much harder lives than Jennifer had. I cannot speak too much to culture, but from many places that I read, the kinds of rules and the kind of life that Jennifer was having is not uncommon for most people whose families are immigrants from that part of the world. Was her life difficult? Sure. Was she sheltered? Yep. But it also seems that her parents were doing everything possible to try and protect her from the world around her, up to and including trying to keep her and Daniel apart, perhaps for fears that he was not the right kind of man for their daughter. They certainly were not wrong in the end. So do you have anything else that you want to add in regards to this case? I think this whole case really shows um, like how important it is to kind of stay connected with the world and your friends and all that stuff. Like, you know, even though they were doing the best for her, it's still very important for her or any child to become who they need to be. Like she was living her life for them for so long. And then finally she decided, no, I'm going to live my life my way. But then she had to do it in secret. And so I feel like as she was growing up, it was like they were just a problem for her. I'm not saying it's okay, but I'm just saying it's so important to kind of let your kids go off and do their own thing and learn for themselves. You know, like, of course, this is an extreme circumstance, but I'm just saying, like, I, as a mom, I feel like this is just absolutely tragic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't put any blame on the family here. I mean, they were being the best parents that they figured they could be. And, you know, like, this is not the way that any family should turn out. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not blaming the family either. I think it's just a tragic case of that parenting didn't work for that child, you know, and that child had something else going on in her life where she had that need already to get rid of her parents. Like they were a problem. They were um, a crux in her life. Like they were, they were just in the way. What I think is that Jennifer found herself way too far down the rabbit hole. I doubt that she even really knew who she was by this point in time. Yeah. We see a young woman who had lived such a lie for such a long time. And over what? A failed calculus class or a couple of bad grades? Listen, 
I have no doubt in my mind that Bick and Han would have been disappointed to find out that Jennifer had bad grades and had failed a class. That goes with the territory of being a parent and having rules. But for things to get to this point is just absurd, and on top of that, obviously heartbreaking. This girl was an awful liar, an awful daughter, and simply only looking out for herself and her relationship that seemed awful with Daniel. Those things were all over and above anything and everything else. How hard is it to make up a course and then go to university? How hard would it have been for Jennifer to straighten her life out? From where I sit, not that difficult. As we've touched on, there are people who have a much, much harder upbringing than she did who still manage to have a good life and, you know, not murder their families. Yeah, I agree. And I really want to just, like, remember, you know, her mom, how she was trying to talk to Jennifer and, you know, tell her it's going to be okay, we just want the best for you, blah, blah, blah. Even though Jennifer couldn't see it at the time, I think that was her mom trying to show, like, even though, like, your dad is really strict, like, he's trying, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if you're one of those people who have had a hard time with family life and you're trying to recover or you're trying to move on or how do I heal from these wounds, um, you know, you might not even think that your family is being abusive. You might not even know any of that. You just might know there's something that is not okay between me and someone in my family. So with that being said, I will throw out one more quick plug in here for that podcast where it runs out. The podcast that sponsored the show, Cheryl does a wonderful job of helping you to identify those problems in your past and heal for a better tomorrow. So whether, you know, you, in this case, you're a Jennifer or you're a Han or you're a Bic, I think this podcast could help anybody just to kind of look into themselves, be a little bit more introspective. Um, so I think we'll leave it at that for this week, but I just want to say thank you so much for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Thank you, Cheryl. You're amazing. And remember in all that you do, be a good human. See you next time.